Um, uh, for those who need the introduction, I'm Vivian Zahol. I'm the curator of uh, Frontier Imaginaries, which is the exhibition that's taking place here at the Institute of Modern Art and really initiated also by the Institute of Modern Art through the curatorial fellowship that was um, offered uh, as an invitation. There's another exhibition at the QUT Art Museum uh, that continues many of the um, associations that happen here that I'd encourage you to take a look at if you've um, got the time. This evening, uh, we're taking advantage of Rachel O'Reilly still being in town because although being from Gladstone and having worked in Brisbane for a long time, she lives and works in Berlin these days and teaches at the Dutch Art Institute uh, in Arnhem, which is one of the finest uh, art academies that I know of anywhere in the world. And there she's very busy as a seminar leader, uh, training new generations of European artists how to think outside of European frameworks, which is a very noble uh, endeavor as well. Um, Rachel is uh, a researcher, a critic, a poet, and an artist, um, and is always very busy um, making trouble between those categories for, for everyone involved. This is two sets of work that both belong under the, the, the banner of gas imaginary, or the gas imaginary, uh, which I also often think of as like how to diagram your way around doing a PhD as well. Um, Rachel will tell you more about the work. Um, I guess the one bit of introduction that I'll give before we start is that I've been very busy this week because I'm in the process of uh, compiling the publication, which will be launched at the conclusion of the exhibition uh, at QUT. So I've been in dialogue with many of the people who are contributing essays, and particularly with the question of what, in fact, is a frontier. With Elizabeth Povinelli earlier this week, we were discussing the frontier as a spatial idea. And so she was talking about it as an idea of um, contact between surfaces and how that might be imagined, whether it's about sort of a head-on collision or whether it's about something that's more to do with knots and twists, which she derives from an idea of a rhizome or a kind of a root structure, as well as an idea of trailings or bags and weavings. Earlier today, I was in a Skype conversation with a young guy called Karim Dai, who's a Hazara man, who's an asylum seeker. Hi, take a seat. Who's, um, and he's, we were on Skype, he's currently in Indonesia, uh, where he's made four attempts to come to Australia by boat that have all been unsuccessful. He's been accepted uh, to enter the United States. And he was talking about the frontier as a line, and because of the frontier being a line, the way that he was talking about it, it sounds like it was a decision. It's something that you cross or you don't cross, and that it involves taking on certain personal risks or undertakings in order to cross or not cross. Um, I'm still uh, figuring out how the frontier is within Rachel's work, but I think in terms of both a spatialization and processes of decision-making, it's very powerful in the work and it's something I look forward to finding more out about this evening. Does that work? Yes. So, um, I'm not allowed to get too close to that speaker, so I'll go this way. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Um, 
this is a larger project, uh, which I call it an artistic research project, but it's basically an excuse to um, think through um, the aesthetic tactics of fracking, um, and but also fracking as a phenomenon that helps us think about current forms of governance and current forms of political feeling in relationship to the state, um, the state and the corporation. So uh, the Gas Imaginary um, is basically uh, a project that includes poetry, essays. I also write theory. I do lecture, um, lecture performances. Uh, and this is specifically, obviously, a drawing collaboration with some uh, artist colleagues that I met and architects that I met when I was on residency at the Jan van Eyck, which is a, an a post-academic artist academy in Holland. And that was the first time that I'd been paid to, um, uh, to produce this work. And before that, I was working independently, uh, visiting Gladstone and Australia on and off for a couple of years. So it was this kind of slow-moving... Um, it was a slow-moving drama at the level of production as well as at the level of the actual installation. So I began work on this project in around... I began thinking about it seriously in around 2012, um, but the industry was installed, I think, much earlier than that, after, like, 2007, I think, as, a, as an idea. Um, the major decisions happened in 2010, and the dredging of the Gladstone Harbour happened in 2011. Um, it's probably worth saying that uh, they're, t they're two quite different series that are um, different kinds of responses to the same kind of material. And I talk about the, the larger project as being site-specific and site-generalising. So site-specific in the sense that a lot of my thinking through how the industry has worked has come from the impacts on the Gladstone Harbour and the relationship of the Gladstone Harbour to the gas wells and the territories of... Um, the territories of extraction in, out in southwest Queensland outside of the city. Um, but in that relationship, I was quite interested in thinking about um, the relationship of this city where I grew up and where many generations of my family grew up that's basically a mining town without a mine. And in that, in this, in that sense, it kind of benefits from uh, the relationship to extraction without necessarily seeing the negative effects of the mine. Um, and with the dredging, we kind of got to see that that kind of distance, the productive distance of the mine from its effects started to kind of break down, which I found quite interesting. Um, so the first series is the top one, and it's kind of dramatising the difference between the modern mine and its verticality and the unconventional fracking mine. Um, and I'm actually sometimes using the drawings that the companies use to um, install the project when they're kind of proposing their um, project to government. So in the... the kind, yeah, it's, it reads left to right, but in the coupling, um, we get kind of the, the setup of the modern mine and the vertical concept of mining downwards, um, the relationship of the heterosexual couple form in creating the workers that continue to be invested in um, producing the surplus value. What was interesting to me about the way that the fracking rolled out um, was the way that it was mirroring or mimicking images of um, modern mining as this kind of vertical form. Um, but actually, when it gets installed, uh, the 
the process actually is a quite dramatic horizontal rollout. Um, and so this, Im this image is called horizontal rev, <laughs> horizontal revolution. Um, so we have, uh, this image is based on one of the images that, that you can see in a, like a corporate um, government diagram and it has always a picture of one well that looks a lot smaller than an ordinary um, oil well, for example. It's always uh, inoffensively um, in a little forest. There's rarely workers around. There's always like one or two trucks and then the landscape is set up in this way. And the more accurate description is like t uh, tens and tens of thousands of wells spread horizontally across the landscape. Um, I can talk so much about this uh, historically, but I'm going to try and stick to the diagrams. So I was especially interested in the role of, the of a kind of mechanical modernist 19th century philosophy, the technical design concepts and images, and the speculative language that the in industry was using um, to help this kind of roll out. And what I found especially interesting about the, the way that it rolled out um, in the States compared to uh, as it crosses countries, for example. So it starts in the States with um, Dick Cheney's Halliburton company propositioning to the US Senate to create um, special exemptions for the industry uh, to avoid a vast array of environmental and water laws um, to enable the industry to kind of roll out as quickly as possible with as limited kind of obstructions from um, legal uh, legal issues and also monitoring. Um, so obviously that, that was already a kind of drama of installation and I think about this project as a kind of um, exploring the politics of installation in an expanded sense outside of art space. So using kind of aesthetic thinking to think about governance as a practice of installation, yeah? Uh, when, it, when it crosses from the States to other countries such as Australia and it came to Australia next, what was very interesting was how the same diagrams get used to hide, hide the kind of more kind of empirical and realistic story of how it actually works. And the same images get used to kind of outroll it um, and the same uh, argument for avoiding legal regulations and environmental re regulations happens all over again. Uh, I think there was only... It was, it was actually a, a few years before um, green politicians in Australia actually flew to the States to see actually what the impacts of fracking was on the ground in America, even though it was you know, reasonably well documented by activists for quite some time. So this is really the role of the image and the diagram in, in making that possible, um, but also obviously different legal regimes and the difference between mineral rights between America and the States. That, that's a very long story. Uh, so if we get, um, the, the further we go along the top series, um, I'm interested in the fact that with this difference between the vertical modern mind that's kind of, you know, in a cosmopolitan kind of imagination, it's always elsewhere and it's producing the city that's, some, that's in another space and the city benefits from the, the kind of violence of ex extraction over there in order to have a quite distant liberal relationship to the mine. With fracking, what's interesting about fracking, and which is why I started writing about it, is that um, the, the installation is extremely social, and it, it, the fact that it begins in an indebted kind of US state is fundamental to how it operates. So it's actually a kind of internal colonization process, and it goes to the poorest um, states first, 
and it asks people to kind of speculate on their own health and well-being in order to generate some um, income for indebted households. So the story of the household that's going to benefit from the mine gets kind of turned from this kind of 19th century couple form into this kind of family, <clears throat> urban, like, yeah, isolated kind of family property form. And what's interesting about that is that when um, this kind of settler colonial overinvestment in, in the property form gets corrupted by the actual industrial waste of the industry, uh, you get to see um, you know, white settler culture really kind of being traumatized around land rights for the first time. And so uh, telling the story of fracking as a kind of second wave of internal colonization is really like one of the main kind of arguments I'm trying to make in, in, in thinking about the politics of investment in the industry and the politics of divestment from the industry. Um, there's lots of autobiographical material in here. So <clears throat> uh, I, was, I started this project when my father was ill, but also my, uh, my great uncle was, was dying as well um, when the fish, the fish of the harbour died a year later. So there's, there are all these kinds of funerals that I was, was kind of attending. Um, over and over again, and I was thinking about the, um, I was thinking about the, the death of labor politics like through my own family. Uh, and uh, what to say about that? So I was interested in how, so I have a longer theoretical paper that I just gave in Sydney. I was interested in how the industry also used quite um, sensational images of labor and the relationship of the mind to kind of left labor politics to also install itself in popular culture to the extent that um, still today uh, most people in Australia think that mining makes a lot more money than what it does and it, they definitely think that it employs a lot more people than it does but actually the fracking industry uh, most of the jobs go into construction which are very well paid and um, not particularly collectively bargained for. And uh, once the construction jobs are over, there's not many jobs left. And so it, in itself, the kind of wage form of the industry is extremely speculative. You can make a lot of money in a short time. You don't know how long your contract will necessarily last for. And so there's not really any way, like the kind of labor investment of those jobs is like non-existent, basically. Um, but, uh, that, didn't, that doesn't kind of stop people from kind of fetishizing this kind of image of mine work. So was, the, the theory talk that I give, which I can, I'm going to publish it somewhere in a few, if you're interested in that, but it's really thinking through like what actually was the, what was the role of the mine worker in the history of kind of left politics? And we get a bit of that here. So there's a really great book by Tim Mitchell called um, Carbon Democracy if you're interested in this stuff. And he talks about how with oil, uh, sorry, with coal, um, there's a possibility to stop production um, in the roles of workers. And so the image, um, the left kind of image of what the coal worker was for the history of kind of labor regulation was actually not just the fact that the worker went into the, this very dangerous underground position and, uh, you know, produce surplus value for a company or a state necessarily, but it was also in the, in the negative force of those, those uh, workers in having the power to also stop production. 
stop production, um, organize across different mine sites, and um, uh, have some kind of impact on the conditions under which they're working, which actually affected not just themselves, but workers in other locations. Um, and also, you know, there is, a, there is a history of mine workers and also port workers especially in contributing to the regulation of labour in other locations than, what they're, than where they are. Um, and, uh, I mean, the Australian, the Australian kind of port labour is really interesting in that history. That's something else. But um, uh, with the fracking, what, what's interesting in the change, and it's a radical change between that kind of labour history and what it is now, um, you can't stop, and this is an argument from Timothy Mitchell, but from coal to petrol to gas, you actually can't stop the industry once it's installed with gas, otherwise you're going to blow lots of people up, right? So the coal miners could stop the coal, the mine producing um, for certain periods of time. Some strikes, you know, went for months and months and months, and the, the capital stayed there. The workers knew that they had to re-employ people eventually and the mine couldn't necessarily move them out and go and mine another piece of coal very easily, uh, which gave the workers a lot of power and which is what this kind of labour investment used to be in the kind of progressive idea of what the mine worker was. Um, with the fracking industry, because you can't really stop it, stop it once, in, once it's installed, the actual stopping of production happens um, with the installation of the project or pre-installation, which is why uh, which is why the blockade is stopping trucks carrying pipes and stopping um, bulldozers bulldozing land. And that shift between the politics of production moves from um, this kind of the productivity of the labourer through to the productivity of actually the kind of site in which the installation is going, right? Um, I'll finish with the first series. So we get... Uh, we get to hear, this is called Citizenship Topsoil, it's kind of comment on um, the role of the settler farmer property in um, exhibiting a politics that's about the pro uh, kind of property trauma, shall we say, um, having to kind of prove that their rights are being invaded but without any baseline. So, there are these really amazing um, images from the, from the main kind of anti-fracking film in the States where all these women pull out dead birds from their freezers and they're, they're saving the birds in, this, in the hope that some kind of independent science will turn up to test the birds. Um, that did happen in some places and eventually, you know, a period of years, um, the extent to which the chemicals that go into the material is getting slightly more regulated, but it's still, um, it's still the case that the recipe for the fracking chemicals that go into the ground are patented like KFC chicken. So you cannot actually know what chemicals are going into the ground of your farm, uh, except by stealing you know, wastewater from the company at night time and sending it off to an independent, independent tester. And that, that has been quite key in, in, uh, in the lawsuits around the practice. Uh, so this is the kind of flow stoppage actual, this is a kind of virtual, I'm interested in the relationship between actual and virtual, so this is a kind of virtual idea of what people think they're doing when they're stopping the installation, they're actually people in a, in a pipe stopping the gas from flowing. Um, 
So I'll go to the next. So this one is really kind of conceptual and it's more about um, territory and particularly kind of through the Australian kind of settler colonial breakdown of what that fantasy of ownership and um, fantasy of ownership and the fantasy of the mine worker kind of was and that, how that gets broken down. The second series is really about um, the history of the Gladstone Harbour. Um, I grew up on the Gladstone Harbour and my father owned a fishing tackle store. So um, he, uh, the ordinariness of kind of conversations between people working in industry, people fishing on the weekend, all these people having different relationships to the harbour, but also the role of like, in a small, tiny kind of colonial port city, the role of the, the, in, the kind of indeterminability between the difference between gossip and politics is really quite strong. So people, you know, the, there's, a one, there's one paper that rarely reports on the industry, except to say like, uh, independent testing proves like 99% water is coming out of our, you know, coming out of the factory this year again. With the, um, with the fracking industry, of course, this, uh, the reporting eventually got more accurate because they had to deal with the fact that thousands of fish died with the dredging. Um, the process of approvals has been proven to be extremely corrupt. Um, and this concept of the growth city, <laughs> I'll go into more detail on that. This concept of like a, of a kind of growth-invested boom-bust city, which is like quite key to the Australian relationship to extraction as such, uh, really started to kind of break down. So in, in Gladstone, the, the concept of that an industry comes in, you get a boom, and then you know, there's a big period of un unemployment, but then the next industry comes along and everything's going to be fine again. This is really quite key to the narrative of Gladstone. And there, there's one um, quite rigorous history written on the city, and it's called... Gladstone city that waited and it's based on this history that it kind of missed out on being the capital of Queensland it has this great natural port and it was just kind of sitting there waiting for it to be properly exploited as a kind of set of natural resources and railways that really were quite uh, ready for like for like major development much earlier than than the development happened uh, so uh, I probably should go into more detail about that so, um, recently, uh, so yeah, I was driving between Gladstone, Brisbane and Amsterdam, uh, watching kind of all this unfold, but also not being documented. There's no, like, there's no journalists that live in town. The first decent documentation of what this kind of weird, um, excessive development project um, was kind of involved in in terms of where the resources were coming and what it was kind of making use of in the relationship of Australia to Asia and various kinds of mining. The main mining companies, Rio Tinto. Um, the first decent documentation with that, of that was actually by uh, a journalist from Le Monde Diplomatique who came over and wrote this really great piece in like 2009, I think. But that wasn't... The industry had been approved, but it hadn't really started out rolling yet. So it was already kind of prescient that something major was gonna happen here, um, and that it was quite an exceptional space in the West in terms of what the, co what the company town actually looked like. It was a booming, booming, mining, booming, booming mining town, port town, um, that you know, in Europe, for example, they wouldn't necessarily, uh, the concept of that being, being part of our kind of contemporary environment is not very strong. They really 
this is really such distance still from a kind of industrial production and industrial imagination. Uh, so, be detailed, Rachel. Uh, so in 2013, um, it was a major moment where the woman um, who was supposed to approve the environmental impact statement of the installation of the coal seam gas industry in, um, in Gladstone and, and the fact that the wells were going to southeast, southwest Queensland, the, um, the process of that approval was proven to be extremely problematic. Um, the woman who was working for the Department of Environment for the state government um, came out and blew the whistle on the process and she was given you know, a t a tens of thousand word document to um, kind of compile and write up and send through for approval in a matter of days or hours or something. And her name was Simone Marsh and she's since, um, she's since uh, sat through a very long uh, federal, gov federal government um, committee called the Select Committee on Certain Aspects of Queensland Government Administration Related to Commonwealth Government Affairs. Um, this happened in 2014, it was after a major examination of, her name's Simone Marsh, it was after a major examination of her claims in the Four Corners report called Gas Leak, um, as to the extent to which the environmental impact statement around the entire installation of coal seam gas in Queensland was basically um, uh, programmed to be a bankable outcome. And in her first, the first time that she blew the whistle on the project, she made the point that the uh, she was asked to exclude a chapter on groundwater from the initial approval process. So um, uh, I've got a quote from her in one of these drawings. Where are we? Oh yeah, I was just. She says in the in the in the Four Corners report, I was just told that there wouldn't be a chapter on groundwater, uh, and so she so she kind of did what she could, and she left the office that day, packed up all her things, quit her job, and then kind of. Yeah, went through this kind of um, inquiry process that has lasted a number of years. The fact that um, this happens in Queensland through a kind of unicameral parliament, through executive governance sitting very far from the territories that they're actually um, exposing to these kinds of new forms of extraction is documented in some of the diagrams. Um, this, here, this image here is actually the same image or technical diagram that GLNG uses or used to present to the state government in this report that Simone was working on um, to legitimise the installation process. What's interesting about it is again there's only like one tiny fracking well. This is the island of Curtis Island in Gladstone. This is the domestic gas supply and of course um, we can talk a lot about domestic gas supply and kind of energy insecurity. Um, but what's interesting about this diagram is that when the, when the whole industry was approved, based on this kind of concept, the location of not a single well was, was part of the approval process. So they approved the concept, uh, but they didn't, they didn't need to see the actual engineering diagram of how this well worked, and they didn't need to know where any single well of like ten, that tens of thousands of wells were going to be installed in Queensland. So obviously, um, I mean, it was called something like, in an email um, that was being thrown around by the people in the executive government who were pr approving the, this final kind of application, 
somebody, somebody said from the federal government, this is, this is um, a degree of constitutional innovation I've not seen before. Um, and also, Simone, Simone says in the, in the Four Corners report, she said, she says, I couldn't believe how little data they had. I was asked to approve um, this huge project on, with almost no engineering data, no well locations. And she said, this was bizarre given that the actual area of land was 600 times the, the size of your average mine site that she normally approves. She was the environmental assessment person who worked for the government writing the, port that, writing the report that said it was going to be environmentally sound. So she had to write an unscientific... Well, she didn't really get to write very much because they didn't really include much. Um, again, we get the kind of image of the mine worker, the fly-in, fly-out mine worker, um, all coming together around this single kind of white property picket fence form. Um, there's a jet ski there, which is a sure sign of bankruptcy once these guys... Um, <laughs> it's true. Uh, uh, the contracts are really 19th century contracts, and I write about this in the kind of labour analysis that I give in the talk, but uh, in the kind of theory talk. But, yeah, so these guys work... What is it? Nine, uh, six, six days on... Yeah. Yeah. And the rest of the time, they are, they, a lot of the FIFA guys are either commuting really long hours to get to the site or they're staying in, like, kind of barracks um, with lots of other guys. And um, it's, it's a, even though the, the salaries are extremely high, it's kind of a tough gig. And the money that gets spent on, on alcohol and, you know, toys to kind of make it less painful um, quickly disappears. And so even though the salaries are quite high, um, there has to be a reasonably concerted effort to hang on to the cash or, you know, this kind of speculative form of gambling on the, on the, on the work contract is really quite strong. This is my favourite image in the whole thing. Um, when I was going to and from Gladstone, it was obvious that um, compared to, and I think this is one of the main um, queries that I get when people ask me, like, why, why is it, you know, why aren't you kind of standing on the picket line instead of drawing drawings about this kind of industry? Well, this is a long answer to that question, but, um, and we can talk about the relationship between art and politics maybe in the break. Uh, but what was interesting to me about like just absorbing this history it was, as it was unfolding was the extent to which everyone knew what was happening, the, the, the level of activism in a city of like 3% unemployment during the boom in which almost every, every income is connected to Rio Tinto in some way um, creates this kind of bizarre um, uh, kind of ordinary headspace in which, um, you know, the, like, the difference between what you know and what you can actually do is, like, quite strong. So uh, I was talking um, to the only full-time activist uh, who, who actually became an activist when she was 65 and she happened to buy property where, on Curtis Island where the project was installed um, a lot through the process. I also started talking um, 
to family, friends, and Gurangarang people around the the history of um, wages in, in the fracking industry, but also in previous industries in Gladstone around the employment of Indigenous people and this kind of crazy contradiction that the companies don't necessarily employ Indigenous people, so they have to fight for the right to even say no to the, the concept of a mining job, right? Um, there were no... Um, the poetry comes out of this drawing. These two are quite related. Uh, I went to a, um, a meeting called the Gladstone Healthy Harbour Initiative, which happened after the fish, thousands of fish died, and there was a big moratorium on commercial fishing, which sent a lot of fishermen into debt, which had never happened before. Six months moratorium. And then the, the company, for the first time ever, was having community consultation meetings to kind of assuage people's kind of anxiety around the future of the Gladstone Harbour. I happened to be in town for one of them, and I went with the other act amateur activist woman, one guy from the Conservation Council, and then, you know, on a Monday in a city of 3% 3, 3 unemployment, just a few fishermen and then a few engineers employed by the companies, and it was like between all of us, maybe 15 people, uh, 20 people. And they spread out all these maps of the waterways uh, and of the whole harbour, and they had little, like, numbers on them, like one, two, three, four. Five, and they're like, number one means it's drinking water, number two means it's company water, number three means it's waste water, number four means it's, it's not drinking water, but it's good for swimming in, number five, you know, so it's like totally itemised um, uh, compartmentalisation of this whole water system that's like fundamentally connected. And we had to sit there and actually speak back to the diagrams and tell them whether they're actually correct. So the fishermen, the most interesting part about this meeting was the fishermen, of course, had all the local knowledge about which parts of the waterways were used for which things. And they started ringing, calling up their phones and ringing their phones saying, yeah, like this place, like on the bend of like so-and-so river, like there's a company waste thing there, right? It's not, we don't go fishing there. And so they were actually correcting the diagrams, quite a lot, actually. And, uh, and we didn't know if this was like just a pure kind of um, exercise making people feel good or if, if the corrections to the diagrams were going to have any kind of impact. Um, but we kind of sat around doing this kind of farcical exercise for six hours or something. And in the end of it, this kind of exposure of the degree of like distant governance for these quite intricate ecolo ecological systems was just profound. Um, so this is like... This is like kind of limits of the economic valuation, like green capitalist story of the 90s when, we, when the story about the kind of environmental crisis meant that if we just put a, val a dollar value on the environment and like trade it a bit, a bit more equitably, then maybe you know, it won't disappear as fast as it is. Um, and I call that orthodox value theory limited edition. <laughs> so it's transferring the kind of labor theory of value into a kind of nature theory of value and realizing the limits of both of them in, in a kind of settler colonial space where if you just, uh, if you have a kind of vulgar orthodox idea of what the value form is, and this is like a Marxist language, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily stop the value from being used up. So, so this is the kind of limits of of kind of white left um, thinking about value. Uh, I'm nearly done. These are the women who put their bodies on the line for uh, on the blockades. Um, I was really interested in the rise of like uh, 
these kind of weird essentialist feminist figures um, that seemed to be kind of mimicking um, many prior decades of, um, of uh, biological essentialist kind of feminist um, arguments, shall we say. There's a group of women called the Knitting Nanas who sit on, uh, on fracking um, blockades but also outside the Queensland government um, departments and just knit and protest against the gas. There's a bunch of women called the Queensland Sadies who dress up as cleaning ladies and um, polish the offices of Queensland um, government, people who, who were involved in the approvals process. And there's, um, there's a really interesting group of performance artists called the Climate Angels. Actually, they're called Climax. One of their performance groups is called Climate Angels. And they do these like crazy kind of religious-looking um, installations of themselves as angels changed to um, railway tracks and changed to um, premier departments, and they went to Paris for the climate conference. And, and they're very visually effective as a thing, but I was thinking through all these kinds of images that they're using and this kind of rise of kind of irony of the wife figure of activism is really interesting. Um, and the final image is really kind of getting you to read backwards through this series. And this is, a, this is my very, documenting my very first conversation with the Garangarang um, elders in Gladstone. Um, and it's kind of also kind of positioning me as a kind of FIFO artist, fly in, fly out, who um, can only respond at the, at the same level, at, you know, as some of the workers to the industry if I'm not actually visiting more often. Um, and I... The very first conversation that we had about their relationship to the harbour, initially I turned up and I felt like, because there was so much undocumented in the history of the harbour that wasn't just the economic story of the development, I thought that I wanted to talk about their relationship to the harbour. But of course, after a native title claim that has been going on for many, many years, they're completely exhausted in talking about any of this stuff. So we, we kind of just talked about the limits of their use of the harbour and what kind of fishing rights they had at the, at the time and what, like, the limits of what they're ever going to get out of any kind of um, native title claim. It's, I think it's nearly being finished, but there's, no in, there's no, going to be no income coming from it. It's just about renegotiating fishing rights and this kind of thing. Um, and so we talked about that, and, I, and to me, this, the whole project is also... There's a lot of Trojan horses, so in the way the, same, the industry uses Trojan horse images to kind of send it into space, I also feel like, like doing this project around Gladstone is also kind of sending me back there to think through like the coloniality of where I come from and also like my relationship to the art museum there um, and uh, my, the fact that there is this long history that's undocumented um, of, you know, survival in this like extremely um, overdetermined context. Uh, and the extent to which that stops other histories being written um, is one thing, but what, how, you know, how you can deal with it as a kind of practitioner or curator or, um, you know, language worker, I, th I find really interesting. Um, and so I just feel like I'm just starting to kind of re-engage with this context through the excuse of writing about this industry, basically. Yeah. Does anyone have any questions? I mean, if you haven't seen the work, feel free to... It's really tiny print, so feel free to have a look. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're looking at the aesthetics of mining, and you made this connection with uh, 
modernity, 19th century um, industrialization. Um, and I was kind of curious about the, the aesthetics of mining as like an aesthetics of destruction. And what you kind of presented is very, um, I guess to my mind, it's very clean imagery. And you, you know, you mentioned that, that the way that um, you know, fracking has been presented in this very kind of sanitized way. It's kind of minimal impact on the landscape. That that kind of idea that 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 comes across really um, strongly in this work. But when I think about fracking, I think about that really violent imagery, that iconic imagery of people setting water on fire. Yeah. You know, and and you've you've avoided that kind of aesthetics of destruction. And then I think about, you know, modernity is also about, it, there's that avant-garde idea of kind of raising things to the ground to start again, to build up again, mm -hmm. to start something new. Yeah. Is that something you were thinking through and purposefully avoiding? What, what was your kind Good of approach question. to that? Um, am I mic'd up? Yeah. Cool. Um, when I first started uh, working with my architect friends on this, so I, this is a collaboration, I need to emphasize that. So obviously I'm not... a a talented 3G programmer, 3D programmer. Um, and initially, I should say that this was going to be some weird, a kind of non-fiction text that I was writing about the, you know, in a reasonably journalistic spirit about what wasn't being documented at the time. Um, but I'm not a journalist, and I was all the way over in Holland uh, when I was working on it. And the fact was that n even though people knew certain things about how different the story was from the story in the paper, or that wasn't in the paper, there wasn't no, any facts to really grasp, even though there was this kind of material mess to be grasping at the level of like corruption or whatever. So, so there wasn't really much to do except think about it on an aesthetic level, so that's one thing. But the second thing is actually, when, I, when we started doing these diagrams, the diagrams actually started because I was having these bizarre studio visits as an artist. I was the only writer among 35 artists at this like totally white cube residency on the outskirts of Holland, south of Holland. And I was having these bizarre studio visits virtually like one-on-one -on -one, the artist comes in and they've got like a high profile and they're supposed to help you think through whatever you're doing. Um, and it's kind of like a date kind of thing which I've never been very good at. And um, and the, I was, the fact was that I was trying to tell them a story of what I was writing before I'd written it, right? So I had nothing to really show them. And I was like, yeah, I've got this story and you know, I'm interested in my family and like masculinity and like space. And, uh, <laughs> but in the process of, of describing the story that I needed to write, I started drawing these diagrams. And so the diagrams just kept repeating over and over again. And I looked at them and I was like, maybe I have to do these diagrams because I can't finish the story because I have no information actually on what I'm actually kind of challenged by. So that's how the, draw, the first series happened, and then I just continued that for the second series. Um, but when I was working with them, I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm doing like 3D imaging, because all of my thinking about um, art, like media and art and indigeneity and settler coloniality for the past 10 years has been about the limits of kind of mathematical thinking. Um, but the... the um, the fact is that these are kind of jokes. Like this, this is like the cleanliness is actually a joke, and the like you 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 don't see that happening until you read the fine print, which is kind of deconstructing the image. Um, and 
you know, that's why I can never get rid of text out of the thing, because the, the relationship between the, the 3D image and the text is actually quite um, uh, negative, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, but I avoided the, I have like a weird film that I need to make that like deals with this flammable water issue because I think, um, I, didn't, I didn't avoid it, but, but it's such a successful image. Like that is the image of the anti-fracking movement and, and I didn't need to do that because that was the successful one, right? Um, but the interesting history of that image is that like when you think about the Halliburton loophole that creates a situation where water is on fire, um, the difference between that and, like, how do you get to the point where it's, like, you know, postmodern, um, you know, Western liberal state where your water is on fire? And, and that happens, <laughs> that happens in the 70s, so, not in the 70s, but the image that's the dialectical uh, opposite of that image is this image um, of the Cuyahoga River on fire in Ohio in 1969. Um, and this image, this, this river was so polluted, like lots of other rivers around the world, but it was so polluted that it used to catch on fire and they couldn't put it out for months at a time. And this, there's this, it just happened to be a kind of moment at the peak of the environmental movement in the US. Um, Kennedy was in power, I think, and um, that might not be true. Anyway, it was the peak of the environmental movement and these Time magazine photographers just happened to be around to take a photo of this fire engine sitting on a bridge, putting out a boat that was right next to like a major kind of chemical plant and the whole, you just see the whole river basically just being on fire. And that fire lasted for months, but the fact that it made the cover of Time magazine was basically the image that installed the first Clean Water Acts that were federal Clean Water Acts in the United States. And it was those Clean Water Acts that were the ones that were abolished by the campaigning of Cheney, Cheney through the American um, Senate or whatever. So flipping that around and like, I, I really think what I, what I was doing also with the Gladstone series especially is like, you know, these, as much as it's a story about capitalistic processes, it's already, it's also a story about who makes the decisions that p perpetuate the violence and giving a history to the decision making, you know, for and against particular kind of political processes lets people think through the fact that decisions are being made all the time by them as well as by the, you know, by the people that they put in power and blah, blah, blah. So um, the drama of decision making I'm really interested in. Yeah. This kind of answers your question. Yeah. Um, just following on from uh, Vivian's query at the beginning, how do you see this fitting into the whole installation about frontiers? I'll give it a go and you can have a go after. Um, how to answer that in an interesting way. Um, what about a boring way? How does, no, we're thinking conceptual here, Richard. Um, let's just say, how does it fit into Frontiers? I, I think any opportunity to, you know, tell a history of, of, you know, colonial Australia is a good opportunity. So really that's kind of how I started thinking about um, 
why I would, you know, what does fracking teach us about X? To me, that's like the continuation, and, and it's actually, it's about, it's about neo-colonization. So, um, uh, the frontier is just, like, I'm really just kind of dramatizing how you set one up and what the consequences are and, um, and thinking about the fracking industry and how, how that kind of frontier works also helps you think about other modes of um, infrastructure that all have similar effects through the same kinds of approaches of governance. So before I did this project, I wrote my master's thesis on um, the neoliberalization of culture and the way in which um, particular modes of governance um, in relationship to managing states and corporations were actually impacting upon um, the way artists and writers and curators think about governing themselves in contemporary culture. Well, not just those people, but all of us have a kind of relationship now to neoliberalization in terms of how it creates subjects and puts them into the world and how you think about, your, you know, speculate on your future um, through kind of diminished kind of um, access, access to rights and regulations. And so that analysis of neoliberalism really kind of made me kind of attentive to different kind of examples of it and the fact that the fracking industry was ruining the harbour of my hometown I thought was a pretty good example to kind of think through a more... Um, uh, Practically, like I'm interested in, I'm more interested in politics than I am in art. So, um, you know, it was a way to think more in more detail about contemporary politics and its relationships to aesthetics, basically. Yeah. I was going to say one other thing. Um, no, I forget. Yeah. Ruben has a question. Um, I just want to ask both of you, I think, Vivian, I want to ask you um, how important is it to you to include humour in an exhibition or in, uh, that is actually really quite serious. Um, and I guess, Rachel, as well, with your work, um, how important is it to you to include humour? Because some of the things that are written there are, are really quite funny, but it's pretty disquieting, the subject of the work. Yeah. Do me to go? You've got the mic. Um, Uh, you know, humour comes out of intractable situations, so that's the easy answer to that question. But I, but I think, um, uh, you know, in these kinds of territories, that is the way people, you know, survive, but also tell stories amongst, you know, if you just told the dark version of the story all the time, you know, it would be quite a different... Um, different relationship to the everyday. So, it, you know, it's... it's um, it's, a start, it's a coping mechanism, but also I would say something like in the bigger picture of divestment, I'm kind of interested in the liberal politics of divestment um, or the more radical version of what divestment actually might be if it was like actually um, political. So um, if we talk about divestment just as like moving capital from here to there, that's like the economic story of, of divestment that's quite a liberal idea. So, so Naomi Klein's book, for example, This Changes Everything, I don't know if you've read it, but um, she has quite a, um, you know, 
her diagnosis of what's happened is quite accurate, but then her story of how easy it would be to shift from fossil fuels to non-renewables is a purely ra economic rational argument. So she says, like, obviously, like, we've done the math and we can just do that straight away. And, you know, if we just didn't have all these people in power, we could do that immediately. And that's a very important argument. And I, you know, I fully, I tell that story when people say that it's not possible. But at the same time, you know, the I'm really interested in attachment and irrational attachment to you know, particular ways of being in the world. And this concept of path dependency in industry, like, it's not just an economic story that industries don't... So this concept of path dependency in, in talking about economies of industry, it's basically like, well, if you do, like, uh, if in this area you have this kind of extraction regime in order to get over here with this kind of non... Uh, renewable energy system, it would involve certain kinds of breaks from a, from a path that you're already on, right? But if you think about that more psychoanalytically, um, it involves all these kinds of breaks from, you know, from certain ideas of the future that are not very economic, that are actually quite kind of psychoanalytic and um, weird and object-based and genealogical and to do with family systems and kinship and all this kind of stuff. So. Um, so the comedy is also about breaking the ordinariness of any kind of straight-edge econo economic argument about getting to over there, because obviously it's going to be really messy um, and kind of like there's disaster in every direction, but, but the comedy is also a way to deal with the fact that it's going to be shit, actually. Like it's going to be, you know, it's going to be terrible pretty soon once we start thinking through the limits of this kind of... Um, economy and the limits of the kind of ability of the environment to reproduce itself. And so there's no way you can tell that story without telling extremely irrational and um, kind of coping arguments about what that's going to look like. Mm. Yeah. That was an extremely excellent answer that it's hard to <laughs> sort of add to as a curator and I've also been like disciplined recently for being an overbearing curator that like puts too much of a theoretical framework on the show. But um, Frontier Imaginaries, if it's anything, is an experiment or a series of experiments. Um, and the thing that I'm learning more and more about this particular part of it, the IMA in particular, is that it's about a situation of being really utterly at a loss for an idea of what politically political good might be. And I was sort of struck by your image of the climate angels again. Uh, in terms of parodying like a former idea of political good that's clearly exhausted and sort of being periodically uh, re-resuscitated. Um, it's very strong within the room that's adjacent to us with a sort of an attempt to uphold a indigenous warrior in a banknote as though, you know, a, a, a cash system of value couldn't be the, um, the ultimate thing that that warrior was sort of standing against at a certain point in history. Um, so comedy is something that um, curatorially has arisen through the dialogues that I've been having with the artists who I think are doing very urgent and important work. Um, so I, I, it certainly, I, I couldn't claim it as something that I have the foresight to build into the work. I, I, I'm always called like a far too serious person, <laughs> always. Um, but I'm understanding it in the way that Rachel has described in a far more sophisticated degree than I have, that it's somehow endemic to a situation where there's an exhaustion of an idea of what political, what form or figure political good might have, 
And what I haven't figured out yet is whether that is something that's constitutive of a frontier scenario or not. Like, that's a sort of a speculation that I'll think on more and I'm interested to try to figure out. Yeah. Are there other Look, one of the things that, that strikes me about fracking as an issue is the new political formations that it's produced. Um, that the communities that come together actually cut across the political spectrum mm. in quite extraordinary ways. Um, partly that has to do with, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the fact that um, this is such an extraordinary process that um, it actually refigures um, some of the political, gr political groupings that we've, we've become used to in um, the sort of two-party liberal de democratic system. Um, but uh, it strikes me also that, that these political groupings are largely spatial in their makeup. Yep. So the oppositions uh, uh, or attempts at obstructing um, these processes uh, take place within the communities that are most affected. And uh, it's, it's only really um, sympathisers, fellow travellers, who actually operate outside of those spaces at a, at a distance to them. Mm. Um, so that, that spatialization that you were um, describing, I think, um, uh, in terms of the, the distance that decision makers are uh, from uh, the actual uh, the space um, that, that, it, that this operation will be enacted on um, is a, a really interesting one. But I, I wonder if that shift in political formations um, destabilizes in any way um, a relationship, a conventional relationship between art and politics. Mm -hmm. um, so inevitably, I guess that question was going to come up. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, how uh, you might operate within that space or if a space is created for some new form of operation. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is, is uh, um, you know, alongside the new subjectivities that are produced by uh, neoliberal um, governance, um, that, uh, that there are rooms for new forms of, um, of opposition. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't need that. Um, yeah, I mean, after writing my thesis on neoliberalism in a... I, mean, I was writing about Holland, but I was actually using an excuse to think about Australia from Holland. Um, uh, what, you know, I was interested in, in the fact that un unconventional extraction creates unconventional politics, and particularly in the most successfully neoliberalized country on earth, which Australia is, like Paul Keating was a master of neoliberalization. Um, in that context, the, the impact of the fracking industry was really the, the real moment where people kind of came to terms on the ground with the difference of that governance regime. And it wasn't until that point where I think there was a social movement that was becoming articulate in exactly what the difference was. Um, at the same time, um, what I was trying to contribute to it is the limits of this kind of property critique. So, you know, you, you do get the fishermen and the agriculturalists and the, uh, you know, the tree changers and the councillors thinking through the fact that they're occupying the same negative commons. You know, the commons is created negatively with fracking, which is interesting. Um, uh, but at the same time, so for example, uh, and this is like why, I think one of the answers to like why art or why like this weird, weird shit rather than like <laughs> camping out on a, a picket line, apart from the fact that I was actually out of the country yeah. thinking through this stuff, but also from a distance, like 
Um, when the Western Australia intervention happened, well, this is what we, what we call it, but when the, the, when the Western Australian government decided to um, close down all these Indigenous communities in 150 communities um, in all of these spaces that happened to be quite reasonably rich in mineral resources, um, the conversation on the East Coast among the extremely strong and now quite institutionalised fracking industry was absolutely zero. So my interest in talking about um, fracking through this kind of lens of colonisation um, is about talking about the limits of practical politics that are so promising, um, but that also have kinds of particular practical blockages to thinking through the kind of space of that and quite more analytically and um, more historically or something. Um, not in my backyard stuff, which is important. I mean, people need to have that relationship to the land, right? Um, and, and there's this whole weird uh, bunch of, like, northern academics who critique all the people, um, all the activists, like, trying to stop pipelines in America, trying, like, all, the, all of the activism around um, the environment, around large-scale infrastructure at the moment. There's a lot of Marxist scholars sitting in Europe talking about the limited imaginations of these people that are trying to stop pipelines when they should be trying to kind of interrupt something bigger than a pipeline, right? So there's, so this, the, the localism that's spatial, I think, is like extremely productive and it is a main site of political um, action and I think we need to take it really serious. I think you, like artists need to take existing social movements really seriously. Like, Otherwise, what's the point? It's not like you're contributing anything otherwise. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, Richard, I just want one, finish one second. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think, and I think, um, I think it's only in these really um, violent kind of settler colonial spaces where there are these spaces that haven't been fully capitalised that people understand the difference between you know, property defence and what they're actually defending that, that is the material of that ground. And, I th and I, that's why I keep coming back here to think about what the hell that is, because in the north it's just like... The on they honestly think the whole world has just been fully turned into a, an object. You know, it's remarkable. What were you going to say? I'm curious about um, what it is that these um, great thinkers, great minds in Europe are, are wanting these people to be agitating against. What the fuck else is there to agitate against if it's not clean water? You know? Well, yeah, <laughs> I would agree with you, Richard. Um, uh, what, yeah, I, I, I mean, this is also what's weird about frac like the fracking industry. Like, it has been such a political opportunity for anyone to come in and say, like, I really care about water. You know, and the fact that, like, the like, you know, the fact that there aren't that many um, normative kind of political party projects that have really come out and mobilised that big time is, I think, that's really bizarre. Particularly when you think about the role. That's why a lot of water well, yeah, it's been big for a long time, but. Um, you know, not the, the colonisation of the West in America was really about electing people that could promise you that water would come to your house, right? And we're looking at the kind of negative version of that story now, and there aren't that many people that are taking advantage of the promise of water. I think that's really interesting. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's it kind of, it's a, it's a funny space for that, 
that, that um, Australian reel. Um, the, uh, in that, look, when we kind of the, the history of bottled water in Australia, it took off as a mass commodity in the late 1980s um, with the introduction by the Coca-Cola company in Mount Franklin. Exactly. And it was, what was really interesting was that it was marketed as an alternative to soft drinks, as so as a, a healthy alternative to soft drinks. So it was priced at the same price point. Mm. Australia's the only country in the world where water costs as much as Coca-Cola does, mm. uh, even for, for bottled water. Uh, but that sort of speaks to that kind of strange, yeah, to that strange imaginary that, that um, was, you know, just around the mining debate in 2010, um, around this idea that, that mining created a lot of jobs. Even when that ad was being made, the largest growth industry was health in Australia, not mm. mining. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're about to see this big foot again, uh, like incidentally enough, you know, in, in the property area, when um, the property council introduces its, uh, its negative gearing units, um, and how essential they are to maintain the Australian property. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, it's a, water is, I think, is, is intended. Oh, Sorry, the, the intervention was about water, you know, mm. more than anything. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. yeah, totally. It's interesting in terms of the longer narrative of a relation with neoliberalisation and the relation of politics and arts. I happened through studying a, a hybrid graphic design and performance artist. I happened to know a bit about the introduction of bottled water in the United States, which was also exactly at the moment that Foucault was also in California and which arose through California. And the advent of the celebrity doctor. So the doctor who was like, uh, giving celebrity diets to Hollywood folks who uh, Warhol was making pictures of. And so it was exactly the moment of um, the, the emptying out of the biopolitical into the consumption of lifestyle, do you know what I mean, um, as well. And it was absolutely a Californian West Coast uh, advent also. Yeah. Also, drugs are big in bottled water, right? This is like West, West Coast consumption of bottled water is really also about drug, drug culture, I think. That's a whole other conversation about frontiers. <laughs> yeah. One more question over here. Are you able to talk a little bit more about uh, gender and family and the way that figures in the drawings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, easy question. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was interested, so the fact that my father was dying when this was happening and the f I was kind of thinking through the death of labour politics through my own family, also, but all through the male side of the family. So my, my great-great-grandfather's toothless head is on the tree of knowledge in Buck Holden, like, like from one of the, what? Great-grandfather. Um, so it was one of the founding members of the Queensland Labor Party. The, my um, great uncle, um, who died very around the same time as my father, was the only Labor voting um, federal tax commissioner of Australia. And he actually was the, um, he was basically responsible for changing the, uh, changing the loopholes around um, tax, tax law in the 80s that sent a bunch of corporate criminals to jail through the bottom of the harbour schemes in Sydney. So I was thinking, like, I was thinking through like, what that is as a heritage for a feminist Queenslander woman to kind of think through the limits of, um, you know, this kind of inheritance of 
certain kinds of, uh, you know, it's extreme. The relationship of the family to the mind form is like, you know, that is such a conceptual thing. It's so obvious. Um, the, the concept of the family wage that needs to be defended for labour politics depended on a, an unpaid woman in the kitchen feeding the worker to go into the, you know, into the mine, you know, and if he dies, hopefully, you know, someone else's wife will give you some food. You know, this kind of relationship of the family wage is really a male wage until, you know, yesterday. So, um, and I remember growing up, you know, listening to political discussion in my family, and it was always the men on the veranda and the women were in the kitchen. You know, so this kind of split, you know, is also part of my lifetime in Queensland. Um, and uh, so, you know, to, to, you know, divestment has this kind of major gender politics, um, and and especially given the fact that, like, with these new wage forms of the fracking industry, like the reason these women are making fun of like old-fashioned um, gender essentialism is that the new forms of the wage re-cut these kind of relationships so that, you know, there are these men disappearing for ages at a time. There is a woman stuck in the home now because she can afford to be, not because she, you know, need, the company needs her to, not to work. But... Um, you know, it is this really bizarre 19th century wage format that creates these kind of domestic women all over again, and the industry is still like, you know, some, some very minor percentage of women employees. Uh, it's not a fun place for women to work. The greatest um, job creation in the major kind of fracking sites in America is prostitution. Um, the, the rates of sexual violence in mining towns, particularly like the, you know, the kind of um, the temporary zones that are kind of set up, you know, the rela relationship to sexual violence and prostitution in those zones is extremely high. Um, and so I was, in, like, you know, I was... The gender stuff is really about um, ref kind of refusing to kind of get rid of, like, actually quite straightforward feminist, like, feminist politics because of the way that these industries are recreating this kind of loop back into prime moments of feminist struggles for certain things. So, uh, but I think the comedy also is, like, where the queer part <laughs> comes in because I also don't, you know, I feel like I'm, like, creating, uh, sorry, curating, like, classical, like, feminine response. This concept of, like, feminist attachment to earth and all this kind of stuff. Like, I think it's, like, you know, that's not... That has been kind of deconstructed in the history of kind of feminist and queer theory, but at the same time, like, what... When I think back to all the dismissals of ecofeminism, for example, like, if you study feminism in the university, you will, you will learn that, like, you know, ecofeminism was a bit misguided about women's connection to the earth, and, of course, that's an essentialism, and it's not actually true. It's just a... Fa like, it's, it's as much a fantasy of capitalism as it is of any kind of feminist politic. Um, well, maybe, actually, these kind of um, gender essentialist positions came up because of these kinds of wage forms that just cut women out of you know, abstract social politics and put them in these relationships to nature that were, like, extremely proximate. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not being in the factory and being in the fucking landscape at the same time. You know, that's, that's a historical relationship. That's not any kind of essential relationship. So, yeah, I was, like, really interested in, like, what is this weird rise of, like, gender essentialism around these kind of working-class communities? Um, and they're not necessarily consciously feminist either, which is interesting. 
you know, but that is working class feminism is about this like not necessarily not necessarily feminism. Like that's actually what you what it is. So it's kind of like awkward and weird kind of territory for kind of thinking through like the past and future of like any kind of gender politics. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Boob jobs. Yeah. 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 Gladstone. Um, uh, I was told like the stories of the little micro industries that form around the industry is really interesting. I remember um, a friend of mine, like one friend of mine was like a like really high up executive decision maker in like the legal secretary part of it and she was like I'm just quitting and I'm going to sell cupcakes you know on the side of the thing because I know that these guys need cupcakes you know um, but another one is like underground um, muscle building powder like there's this whole underground like people like people buying on eBay like all the like most excellent productive um, borderline illegal muscle building things because that's like in the, in the, there's not a lot to do in these spaces and so going to the gym at night time is one way to kind of stay sane and there's heaps of like um, illegal t um, additional like drug stuff to do around bodybuilding and, and some people you know in Gladstone I was the, there's a story of these two dudes that were making more money selling muscle building power than working in the fracking industry so they used the fracking industry capital to start up their muscle building business yeah Would you understand that as like um, so? We're talking about a we're talking about like the frontier in the second degree, right? Like in the first image of the second slide, it's like the new fuck you, right? So you had the imperial frontier, which was like the first wave of colonization, which was sort of taking the land off the people who'd been there before, and then as you said, it rolls out in the United States, which is kind of like retaking the land off the 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 poorest of the white people who are now there who sort of then get a bit of a shock in terms of what they thought their property relational place was. Um, so in terms of that sort of frontier of the second degree in the in the understanding that I've been researching around how the frontier works, particularly in terms of it being a space where it's hard to form a contract. So where there's sort of like not a set um, playing field of conditions where you can go like definitely okay you come here, do that, we'll do this, you know that tends to break down, that the, um, the, the extremity of gender relations is partly because of the necessity of a genealogical contract, which is the marriage contract. So property can't be secured by buying or selling or trading, and so property is secured first and foremost through genealogical inheritance. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think forward in terms of whether that is uh, at stake in terms of these sort of extremity of gender relations within the new second degree frontier or if it's sort of some kind of uh, mutation of that. I don't know if that's something you've thought about before or if that made a whole lot of sense. I'm just trying to think. Um, I would say something like, yeah, it's the, it, is, it is the space of contingency but it's also the space of the strongest contracts because in the, in the space of most contingency you need the strongest contract. So that is why the, like, things get very clear and very violent. Mm. Um, and very like heterosexual mm. <laughs> um, because there are these kinds of forms that you need to take in order for these kind of quite fragile situations to continue to move. 
Does that answer yeah, the question? Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.